new series last week, and uh, I wanted to share with you some of the underlying premises of this new series. Uh, one of the first underlying premises is that we live in a crazy world, and it appears to be getting crazier. Uh, last week, I shared with you that you know one one definition of sanity is the uh, ability to distinguish between reality and delusion. We seem to be losing that ability, or maybe just uh, maybe less losing it than surrendering it. Uh, because we have embraced uh, a worldview in which nothing is sacred. And this is one of the other premises of this series, is that when nothing is sacred, insanity is a foregone conclusion. And here's the reason for that. Our God is real. His creation is real. His created and natural order are real, and that more than just real, these things are sacred. That the way that God designed us and the way that God designed the world around us, the way it is all meant to be, that is sacred. That is the sacred order. And the further that we get from that sacred order, the more sick and broken we become. Now, starting with me, the further I get from God's sacred order, order, his holiness, his righteousness, his law, the more broken my life is, the more broken my relationships will be. And the further the culture gets from God's sacred order, the more broken and sick it will be. But we don't often make this connection. We don't often see it. In fact, much of the world this morning is going to reject the very idea that this God that we speak of is, in fact, the ultimate reality upon which all of these things should be based. And so, as we make these choices that take us further from the sacredness of God, and we find that our lives and our communities and our families and sometimes our churches are more broken and unhealthy because of it, you would think that we would recognize that connection and we say, oh, we need to step back towards God. But instead, more often than not, what, particularly what the world around us does, is as things appear to be broken and unhealthy, say, well, maybe we need to take a step further away from God and then things will get better. And I'll take another step and I'll get a little bit further. And so we wake up one morning and we turn on the news and we go, how on earth did this world that we know, did this community, did this nation get so far away from these core principles of God's truth? How, how, how do we get to this point where we can call the truth a lie and we can call the lie truth? Well, it seems like it happens overnight, but the reality is it happens one step at a time. We continually step away from the sacredness of God. And so in response to all of this, we need a sacred cure. And here is the core premise of this entire series. We need a sacred cure. If we were to boil that premise down to its nuts and bolts, it would be this. We need Jesus. Now, I know that sounds a bit cliche, right? can't say that in the culture without people kind of smirking at you. Oh, sure, yeah, Jesus is your answer for everything. 
I want to tell you this morning, Jesus is my answer for everything. We need Jesus, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. We certainly shouldn't be ashamed of it. In fact, can you say that with me? We need Jesus. Come on, you can do better than that. Say it like you mean it. We need Jesus, right? So, you may have noticed the titles for these sermons are a little bit different than my titles have been in the past. Last week, uh, the title was When Insanity Becomes Fashionable. All right? The answer to that is we need Jesus. When insanity becomes fashionable, say it together, we need Jesus. The title of today's sermon is When What You Expected Isn't What You Expected. When that happens, we need Jesus. Now you're getting the idea. Today's topic is kind of ironic because Jesus really does defy our expectations. Uh, you know, at Christmas time, we sing sometimes, if you're in a real traditional setting, you might hear the, the, the old hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Well, that, that, that actually doesn't get it quite right. Because the Messiah was anticipated for a long time. The Messiah was a topic of prophecy from Genesis on. The Messiah was long awaited by millions of people over thousands of years. But Jesus was unexpected. Who Jesus turns out to be is not exactly the Messiah that people were expecting him to be. They thought uh, the Messiah was going to be a deliverer like Moses or maybe a mighty warrior king like David. Jesus comes along and instead of delivering the people from Roman oppression, he delivers the whole world from sin and darkness. And instead of setting up a grand new kingdom of Israel like David had, he says his kingdom is not of this world. So his followers were expecting a Messiah. They were, they were hope, hopefully anticipating the arrival of this Messiah. But when he shows up, they were seeking immediate relief from temporal problems, from political problems. Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the comprehensive solution, the comprehensive cure. Now, let's, let's just be honest about this. I think even Christians have a hard time accepting this version of Jesus, that he's the comprehensive cure to everything. We're comfortable with a Jesus who came and died for our sins and is the uh, instrument of our salvation. But the Jesus who's the answer to every question seems a little far-fetched. And everyone in our world, whether Christian or Secular, I, I can't believe how often secular people in the media comment on who Jesus is. We've all got our redefinition, our version of who Jesus is. Sometimes Jesus, uh, in, in religious circles, is a fire insurance salesman. He offers us sort of a passive salvation, and he is the proverbial nice guy. He's just so, so nice. 
Sometimes Jesus is my personal life coach and my cheerleader. Whatever goals, whatever ambition I have for myself, Jesus is there to help me be successful and make it all happen for me. Sometimes Jesus is the affirmer of my destructive choices. I think this is fascinating how often the culture embraces this idea that I can choose the most self-destructive path for myself and then I will argue that Jesus would back me on this. Oftentimes, Jesus is the endorser of my social and my political opinions. Jesus belongs to my political party. Here's the reality, whether we are Christian or non, it is arrogance to imagine that Jesus will meet our inferior expectations of Jesus. So what did those who experienced Jesus, what are those who had an encounter with Jesus, what did they say about him? Well, let's look at what Paul said in Colossians, still in chapter 1, starting with verse 15 this morning. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In everything? Jesus has supremacy in everything? What does that mean? Well, look, folks, if Sanity is the ability to discern between reality and delusion. And if, as Jesus said, knowing the truth is what will set us free, then Paul says we need to understand that Jesus is the ultimate expression of truth, the ultimate expression of reality. He is the standard by which everything can be judged because he is the creator and he holds it all together. He is the answer. What's real, what's right, what's just, what is my identity, what is my purpose, what gives my life meaning, where is true hope, how do I find real love, all of these things. In all of these things, Jesus has supremacy. Jesus is the ultimate answer. Now, you see how we take that ultimate answer and we reduce it down to this sort of flipping a switch between I'm, I'm either going to heaven or I'm going to hell. We've acted like that's the whole story of the gospel. But the whole story of the gospel is that Jesus has supreme authority over everything. Jesus is the smartest guy in the room. He's smarter than you and I. His plan for you is a better plan, a wiser plan than your plan for you. Why? Because he has supremacy over everything. We have not been commissioned to get people to passively receive Jesus in order to punch their salvation ticket. We have been commissioned 
to make disciples of people and teach them to obey everything that he taught. Why? Because he has supremacy over everything. What does that what does that really mean? We talk about discipleship around here a lot, but what does that really mean? Well, here's one definition of discipleship I'd like you to consider. Discipleship is the process of coming to terms with who Jesus really is. Because there is nothing. There is no situation. There is no circumstance. There is no relationship. There is no power struggle. There is no problem over which Jesus is not the supreme authority. And when we try to wrestle that authority away from Jesus, we are meddling with sacred things. And we do a lot of meddling. The sacred realities embodied in the person of Jesus Christ have the opposite effect. They transform us as we are exposed to them. When we have an encounter with the reality of who Jesus is, it begins to transform all of the broken and sick pieces. In counseling, this responds, I think, roughly to something uh, we know as reality therapy. Reality therapy is once a very common uh, approach to uh, cognitive behavioral counseling. Uh, I fear it's falling out of favor. But, uh, and one of the reasons it's falling out of favor is because this uh, reality therapy emphasizes your choices. Your choices over mental health. It's not about mental health. It's about what choices you make and what the outcome of those choices are. Well, that's, that's not such a popular view anymore. But... If you like uh, celebrity counselors like Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura or basically any media-driven counselors, they tend to rely on some form of reality therapy. And the reason they do that is because it's the only sort of approach that works in that medium. You need something quick. You, you, you can't do a, a thorough uh, historical analysis of the person's situation. Uh, and so you need something quick. And the basic premise behind reality therapy is this. All of us have preferred fantasies which we go to in place of the reality of our situation. When we have uncomfortable realities in our life, things that we don't know how to deal with, we choose fantasies that we kind of like. And the problem with these fantasies is that they disrupt our ability ever get any better. They disrupt our ability to function. So there are, And there's a lot of fantasies that we can have. The proponents of reality therapy would say that mental illness itself is one of those fantasies. By, by blaming things on mental illness, we're essentially saying, it's not my choice. It's not my responsibility. I can't do anything about it. It's completely outside of myself. It separates us from the power that we have to make choices that might make our future different. But there are a lot of other fantasies that we engage in. One of my personal favorites is something we'll call a useful distraction. And useful distraction is basically when I have a problem, when I have I've run into a wall and I don't know how to get through it, I will choose to work on the problem that I feel comfortable with. 
And I'm often guilty of this personally. I'll choose to work on the things I feel comfortable with rather than deal with the things that make me feel incompetent and inadequate. But in doing so, I avoid working on the reality of my situation and so that whatever that problem is never gets any better. There's also things like blame and misdirection. It's always someone else's fault or some institution or some situation, and I am the hapless victim to all of these forces. There's nothing I can do about the situation. There's, of course, self-medication, which is sometimes drugs and alcohol. I can self-medicate with drugs and alcohol to numb myself from the reality that I don't want to deal with, but also it can, it can be a lot of other things, food, sex, anything that distracts my attention from the problem that I know that I should be dealing with but don't want to. The objective of reality therapy is to identify this fantasy, this, this disruption that keeps me from getting my needs met, that, that breaks my relationships, identify it, and choose a new behavior based on reality. doesn't focus that much on the past. You won't have to spend a lot of time unpacking all of your mental health history. And there are no punishments. This makes it a little bit different from other forms of behavioral therapy. There's, there's, there's no deterrence. There are simply new choices. If the choice that I make today doesn't deliver the outcome I'm looking for, I make a new choice and I work on a new plan. Now, in our culture, I say that this has become less popular because in our culture, there is an emerging alternative to this. I'm not sure exactly what we would call it, but instead of embracing reality and dumping my favorite fantasy, we embrace the fantasy and then begin to reshape reality to match my fantasy. The clinical term for that is crazy as a bag of cats. Because that does not work. And it never will work. But it hasn't kept our society from trying headlong, diving in to this, uh, this ideology. Now, at this point, you might be saying, okay, counselor, what does this have to do with Jesus? I am so glad that you asked. Colossians 1, again, Paul says in verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, get this, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I think what Paul is saying is that the gospel is a kind of reality therapy for the soul. Christ is reconciling all things to himself. Christ becomes for us the ultimate expression of reality. We accumulate fantasies, and these fantasies are all delusions about how we might live our lives apart from God, and none of them work. They disrupt lives. They keep us from getting our needs met. They disrupt our relationships. But Christ reconciles all things to himself. I was uh, in high school when home computing was becoming a big thing. I don't know how many of you remember this time. Uh, I had a Commodore 64 computer one of the most popular computers of the time, 
revolutionized the home computing market. The C64 had an 8-bit processor and 64 kilobytes of RAM. Your phone today is infinitely more powered, powerful than a Commodore 64, but at the time, it was something else. And I used that word processor for my homework, and we played games on it, and we mess around. There's all kinds of fun things you could do with a Commodore 64, and it did revolutionize the market. I, several uh, years back, my family took a trip out to Washington, D.C. We went to the Smithsonian the History Museum. We're going through the History Museum, and we come upon this display about computers, home computing, and there is a Commodore 64, and there is the original Apple Macintosh, the little beige box. I'm looking at that display and I'm going, I owned both those computers, which made me feel slightly important and very, very old. Back in those days, there were computer magazines, hobbyist magazines, and in the back of these magazines, there would be programs written out. <laughs> published, written out, and you would have to copy all of the lines of code, which is just a series of numbers. All of it was all written in machine language. You would have to type into your Commodore 64 all these lines of code. And invariably, after typing pages and pages of these numbers, you'd get something wrong. And then you'd fire up the program, and it would do nothing. And so you know what you would do? You would print out what you typed in, and you would get the magazine, and you'd compare them. Go back and forth, each and every single digit, to try to find the ones that you typed in wrong. You had to do a complete audit to try to get that software to work the way it was supposed to work. That's what it means to reconcile. Jesus sets his life up next to yours, and he goes through each and every line of code. He comes across one, and he says, wait a minute, I didn't put this here. This came from somewhere else. And he deletes that line of code and replaces it with the original source code that he wrote. That's reconciliation. This is what's happening. This is the reality therapy we're experiencing when we are participants in the gospel. Christ is reconciling us to himself. When we are submitted to and we are participating in this process, it does, in fact, transform our lives. But the transforming truth of Christ today is comfortably contained. We don't even always talk about it. We, we We make discipleship. Sometimes we even make obedience to Christ, sort of an optional part of the program. Jesus, we say, you can, you can save my soul, but don't disrupt my delusions. Don't mess with my useful fantasies. Forgive my sins, but don't alter my sinful nature. Don't shine your light into my dark world. You see, the foundation of all these preferred fantasies that we accumulate along the way 
is actually a very ancient lie, and the very ancient lie is this. God is not enough. That is the core of all of our delusion, this belief that somehow God is not enough. And if God is not enough, then we really are beyond help. Back in the 60s, there was a researcher uh, named uh, Martin Seligman, and he was a researcher in classical conditioning. You know what classical conditioning is. That's like Pavlov's dogs, right? Pavlov taught his dogs. He fed his dogs and rung a bell at the same time, and they would all salivate, and pretty soon he'd had them where he could ring the bell without feeding them, and they would salivate as he had conditioned them to associate those two things together. Seligman was a little bit more sadistic in his research. He taught dogs to associate a stimuli with electric shock. So, so uh, in his uh, early research, he would ring a bell and then uh, have a little electric shock that the dogs would feel. And after a while, he had them so well conditioned that he could ring the bell and they would whimper and cry like they were being shocked. They would act like they were being electrocuted just because of the sound of the bell. Well, he discovered something by accident in a later experiment. He designed this little box that had a kind of a low fence in the middle. And he could, uh, I don't know why he was so big on electrocuting dogs, but, but he could, he could uh, put a shock through the floor of this little box on one side of the fence. And his hypothesis was that the dogs would feel the shock, they would jump over the fence, and they would go to the other side where they wouldn't feel that shock. And most of the dogs very quickly learned how to avoid the shock and get to the other side of the fence. Here's the problem. He introduced some of those dogs from the first experiment, the experiment where they couldn't escape the electric shock, put them in the same box, they never learned to escape the shock. He would activate it, and they would just lie down and whimper until the shock ended. This he termed learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is the belief that regardless of what I do, it won't make any difference. And learned helplessness prevents us from challenging our own expectations or the expectations of others. When we expect to fail, when we expect to be punished, when we expect that nothing will change, we settle in to whatever sick and broken routine has been ours, and we embrace fantasy alone as our escape. There is no real hope. One of the main reasons that there is no punishment, no deterrent, in reality therapy is that people who expect to fail do not benefit from punishment. It, it doesn't motivate them at all. They just surrender to it and assume that it's a normal part of their existence. I think maybe this might give us some insight into why Christ deals 
first with the problem of our sin, our guilt, and our debt. So Paul says, turn to verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, And free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration that God is, in fact, enough. Not only that he is good enough and powerful enough, but that he is interested enough to come into your life and deliver you from your fate. God is enough. In being enough, in freeing us from that punishment, in freeing us from our past, he gives us the opportunity, the option of making choices that will make our future different. In other words, Christ reconciles everything that he saves. I want you to understand that reconciliation and salvation are slightly different things. Reconciliation is related to salvation. Salvation is certainly a part of it, but reconciliation is an ongoing process. Paul says you've got to stay with this. We are reconciled to God by the death of Christ, but we are being reconciled to Christ's resurrected life. We are to become imitators of Christ. And I don't mean imitators in the sense that margarine imitates butter but will never actually be butter. I mean imitators in the sense of the apprentice becoming just like the master. See, most people do not descend into darkness in one leap. Nor are we transformed into light in one leap. And here's here's what I really want you to take away from this today. Tiny steps are as important to the journey as leaps of faith. As we submit ourselves to Christ in small things, he effects big change. A sort of a spiritual conditioning. Christ says that we are the branches to his vine. This last week, I, you know, we planted fruit trees in the front yard. Almost immediately after we moved here, I planted fruit trees in the front yard. Planted them quickly because I knew I'd have to wait years for them to do anything. They all filled up with blossoms this year. They were gorgeous. Now with a freeze coming, I don't know what happened to that, but, but they were beautiful, and, and Lisa said, do you think we'll get any fruit this year? I said, oh, I'm not counting on it. I'm not counting on it, because it takes a long time. Fruit, fruit trees, I have five to seven years at least before you see any production. If we were to go out in the yard and say, I'm going to see if my fruit trees are growing, I could stand there and watch them for a long, long time. 
I use that as my basis for understanding whether or not they're growing, I'd say they weren't. However, if I check on them each day, if I check on them each week, I will see that they have, in fact, grown. We like to think that Jesus is going to come into our life and zippity-bam-boom, he's going to make everything good. Everything's, we're just, we're just going to... We're just going to step over that threshold, and Jesus is going to remake us. Here's the reality. We grow so slowly that it's not visible to the naked eye. But when we are submitted to the things that Christ wants to do in our life, he is, in fact, transforming us. And over time, we will be able to witness that transformation. Yeah, sometimes there will be leaps of faith. Sometimes you'll, you'll have an experience that just makes you grow so quickly, and you think, Man, I'm growing like corn. You can listen. You can hear me grow out in the field. Most of the time, we grow like fruit trees. It's slow and intentional and methodical, but it happens over time when we allow Jesus to do the work that he wants to do. When we study, when we pray, when we participate in the fellowship, when we participate in Christian service, we are essentially inviting Jesus to audit our code. So the question this morning is less about where does Jesus want you to be five years, ten years down the road. It's less about where Jesus wants you to be when you approach the judgment. The question this morning is where does Jesus want you to be next? What's the line of code that he wants to rewrite today? If we submit ourselves to what he's trying to do in our lives from day to day, we will find that we will have made a journey that has taken us many miles and over much landscape, and we, we won't even realize we've done it. Christ will have done it through us.